welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And we've been going down the American Film Institute's 100 Years of Film Scores, their list of purportedly the top 25 scores in American cinema history. We're now down to number 22. Which means that in this episode, we'll be discussing Leonard Bernstein's score to the classic 1954 drama On the Waterfront. On the Waterfront was produced by Sam Spiegel, written by Bud Schulberg, and directed by Elia Kazan. John, tell us about On the Waterfront. Well, it's a gritty black and white melodrama about a union of dock workers on New York Harbor. Uh, it's sort of ripped from the headlines. I think there was actual reporting done about the hard conditions that these dock workers faced. And uh, this movie is sort of an exploration of the role of individual conscience in standing up to corruption. Yeah, so the individual that we're tracking is Marlon Brando. He's kind of a dock worker now. He used to be a prize fighter, but he's really slowly being drawn into the inner circle of these mobsters who are running the union. Because his brother, played by Rod Steiger, is second in command to the boss, played by Lee J. Cobb. Movie also stars Carl Malden as the local priest who's trying to clean things up, and Eva Marie Saint as the love interest, who's the innocent young sister of someone who was killed by these mobsters. The payoff to the movie ultimately is Marlon Brando's decision to testify against the corruption, and he gets to that point largely through the change of heart that he has from the blossoming of the romance between his character and Eva Marie Saints. Good enough? Good enough. So in our prior conversations, John, you have repeatedly returned to the question of the director's relationship with the composer in determining the function of the score, yeah. what the storytelling choices are, whether there's a unified approach. Yes. And I feel like this movie is a kind of don't try this at home exception to that. <laughs> I feel like what's yeah. going on here is a very obvious conflict of two different conceptions of the movie between the composers and the directors. Let me quote from this interview from Kazan. Kazan says, I try not to bring another personality into the picture through the music, but there was no way to avoid that with Lenny. So you're aware of the music. It put the picture on the level of almost operatic melodrama here and there. That's the only thing I object to. He's saying he objects to the music in his own movie. And the interviewer asks him how he works with composers, and he gives a general answer. The first thing you talk about is where there should be music, where it will help, what kind of music it should be. Then you determine just where it comes in and cuts out. Then you determine what the music should do to the scene, etc. That's a process that's called spotting. Then at the end of this same response, he says, There was less of that with Lenny. He was the most highly regarded man in the field of American music, so he went off and did a score by himself. I don't know if I even said much of anything to him because I was so glad to have him. At the top of that paragraph, he does say, then we talked about every sequence, meaning that he did have a spotting session with Bernstein. Well, clearly they'd had some amount of coordination, but I think it is telling because to me watching the movie, there's this sense that when Kazan says, I try not to bring another personality into the picture through the music, that is what is happening. There is an assertive personality, and it's the personality of Leonard Bernstein, giant of American music, showing up. And it's like someone else doing another gloss 
on what's happening and bringing it to the fore so that you, it can't be denied. And the fact that it works most of the time at a very high level is a testament more to Leonard Bernstein being such a brilliant composer than it is to the normal process by which a movie score is composed. Yeah, I like that you called it the don't try this at home approach because you're right, this is out of the usual and shouldn't be attempted by anybody you know, who's not Leonard Bernstein. But I, I gotta say, I think he does it. I mean, he obviously had a lot of experience and had thought a lot about the use of music and its relationship to storytelling. I mean, he'd written several Broadway shows at this point. He'd written On the Town and Wonderful Town and some ballets. And- yeah, there's a certain cinematic, you know, sort of a score quality to a ballet. So I think that with his skill as a composer, he actually was able to kind of spot the movie on his own and figure out what musically he needed to do to it pretty well. I think with just a couple of exceptions, places where the music doesn't quite line up with the tone of the film. And we'll we'll get to those. So this score is the only one written by Leonard Bernstein for a movie. Yeah, the one and only score that he wrote. And he was... Asked to many times afterward and didn't want to. In part, it's reported because of the frustrations inherent to writing a movie score having to do with what happens to the music you've written. And he wrote a thing in his book, The Joy of Music. He wrote it for the New York Times and then it was edited for his book. Did you read that thing, John? Yeah, I did read that thing. I think that's super interesting and it's really interesting insight into the thoughts of a film composer, uh, even a reluctant film composer. I want to give my uh, full disclosure here that this music was familiar to me as an orchestral suite that he put together afterward. He actually had a particularly unusual clause in his contract to the effect that he would have the right to create an orchestral suite and completely own it himself. So I knew all of this music as music, and I love it as music, and that's kind of prior to my thinking about this movie at all. Well, yeah, terrific music. Uh, And Bernstein wrote in that article you mentioned, he wrote, And so the composer sits by, protesting as he can, but ultimately accepting, be it with heavy heart, the inevitable loss of a good part of his score. Everyone tries to comfort him. You can always use it in a sweet, cold comfort. It is for the good of the picture, he repeats numbly to himself. It is for the good of the picture. Crucially, though, his next sentence is, and after all is said and done, the others are right. The whole picture is what counts. You know, so he had this egotistical sense of the music being, you know, what he was super concerned with, but he had his head on straight that he did understand. He wrote, By this time I had become so involved in each detail of the score that it seemed to me perhaps the most important part of the picture. I had to keep reminding myself that it is really the least important part, that a spoken line covered by music is a line lost, and by that much a loss to the picture, while a bar of music completely obliterated by speech is only a bar of music lost, and not necessarily a loss to the picture. Right. And yet the, as you say, egotistical attitude implicit in his frustration there is apparent in the score, which... The score reveals the desire to drown out the dialogue much more than any other score (laughs) I can think of. Well, I thought there'd be more of you here, but the the Romans found out what a handful could do if it's the right handful. So this is a scene where the local Uh, priest played by Carl Malden, who has begun to take an interest in rooting out corruption. Hey, Carl Malden uh, is in exactly half of the movies we've talked about so far, huh? 
That's right. This is the second Karl Malt. He must be in half of the rest of them, too. Well, it remains to be seen. Yeah, who knows? He's everywhere. What a nose on that guy. I mean, it's hard to watch a scene with him in it and not be thinking, nose, nose. I'm going to cut that out. But that no, is don't my, cut. That's good. That's my honest reaction to a scene. Um, it's, a great, it's an all-time great nose. It's up there with, with Jimmy Durante. It, it is. Up, up where? I don't know. Um, this is a scene that takes place in the church where Carl Malden is the local priest who has taken a humanitarian spiritual interest in the problem of corruption. He wants to root it out and he wants to encourage the dock workers to inform to help get better working conditions. So he's invited them to a meeting in his church. And of course, the mob bosses don't like this and they send out thugs to beat them as they leave. So as the meeting gets broken up by these thugs, Bernstein comes in with this action music begins there's a there's a tumult and there are still several lines left for Carl Malden to say he's shouting at his fellow priest you feel Lenny being like I get to go now right it's, it's my turn here we go He just drew a line in the scene. He said, here's where the dialogue nature of the scene ends and the musical flow begins. And it's not strictly where the dialogue ends. And it works fine for a viewer, but... Lenny has to win before it works. Because if you say, well, I kind of wanted to hear what they were saying to each other, you feel Lenny being like, it doesn't matter. Trust <laughs> me, it doesn't matter. And I'm not sure that everyone else in the movie would have agreed. They certainly wouldn't have agreed before they heard what he had written. This is piece that he wrote that we were just reading quotes from about, well, in dubbing, you know, you have to have these fights. It seems like he set himself up for a fight more than I can imagine any seasoned film composer doing. He really believed he was allowed to take the reins when he saw fit to do so. Yeah, and you can definitely hear the result of that fight on the dubbing stage, which is where the different sound elements of a film get mixed together and sort of printed for the final delivery of the film. You can hear those fights because the music gets audibly dialed down for certain lines that Carl Malton has to say uh, and then back up again. You can hear the the fader move pretty clearly. Which is necessary because... It seems like Bernstein writing alone in the studio with a moviola, as he says in his piece, just writing unsupervised, would have these feelings of where the scene became essentially musical and was able to sort of disregard other elements at that point because he knew what matters at this point is the flow. And his instincts for that are, I think, in a sense, as good as anyone's have ever been. But a movie is a very complicated construction. 
You know, I thought a lot about West Side Story while watching this. Because in West Side Story, in a musical, if at some point he says, well, at this point, music takes over. The music can genuinely take over at that point. Everything becomes musicalized. Riff, what are you doing? Oh, Tony. And in the movie, there's a kind of inertia, to say the least, of the realism, especially a movie like this, which kind of prioritizes realism. I think you're right. His instincts are really good. And I wanted to point to this other example here where he seems to have been at odds with Kazan. But I actually agree with Lenny. In this interview that we've been citing, Kazan says, I didn't like the opening piece of music. It says, these are the heavies. And so this opening piece of music is right after the main title, and we just see some guys come out of a little shack and walk up the dock, and one of them is the mob boss, who's played by Lee J. Cobb, and one of them is Marlon Brando, and a bunch of other sort of mob-looking goons. So we hear these very heavy drumming mixed in with low piano notes, and it's very tense and action and, like, bad stuff happening. And there's nothing bad happening on the screen. There's just some dudes walking. And then it goes to the scene where Marlon Brando sort of unwittingly lures this prospective informant to his death of being pushed off of a rooftop. And again, the music is really in a fervor. And I felt like the music knew something that I didn't. The music knew bad stuff is about to go down. You know, these guys are up to no good, and uh, we're about to see why. Okay, I'll see you on the roof. I really appreciated that sense of anticipation that it was giving me. It immediately set this tension, this, this sort of potential difference between what I was seeing on the screen and what the music was telling me the stakes were. Bernstein is scoring the stakes, even though we don't know what they are quite yet. I think somebody fell off the roof. I found that really compelling. So did I. I think that he makes a great, strong choice, a bold choice. Yeah. And so we just have it on evidence that it was not the choice Kazan had in mind. Right. That Kazan, 50 years later, looking back, says, yeah, I don't know if that's really what I would have wanted. And so if you imagine the Kazan version prior to the scoring, where you do just see some guys, then you see Marlon Brando looking you know, like a friendly guy saying, here's your pigeon. I'm going to meet you up on the roof. The reveal in that sequence, there's a tilt up to the roof, and when we finally see the roof, we see two bad guys, mobsters, in silhouette standing there. And that would have been the moment when the audience understood, hey, maybe something bad is going to go down here. 
So I think Bernstein manufactures a similar sense of revelation by juxtaposing what we're seeing with the sense that something bad is going to happen. And then, as you say, we connect the dots on the reveal of the heavies on the roof. It's a satisfying click into place for the audience. Ah, this is why I was feeling uneasy. I'll take him up to your lawn. Okay, I'll see you on the roof. Prior to that, this music's just a jangling. It's kind of telling you what world you're entering, but you don't know exactly to what effect. Actually, I think it's worth noting that the opening shot is a very wide shot where you see a huge ship, you see the whole harbor, you see the skyline, you see a lot. It's full of visual interest. So when you start hearing this timpani clatter and all this pounding, for me at least, the immediate first frame response is that this is setting the scene. Whatever this world is like, it sounds like this. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about what the materials are in Bernstein's score. I would say the core material is this four-note motif. Da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm. And from that, he derives all kinds of other material. And I always think that, you know, derives material is this kind of insidery, composery way of talking about that stuff. All it means is that he comes up with scoring for a lot of different scenes that isn't necessarily literally and blatantly da-da-da-da, but it's connected to it, it relates to it, it sounds organically tied to it. of it, he uses an extension of it, he does stuff to it, and it generates other stuff. Right. The main title is another of the main thematic pieces in the score. first thing we hear is just a solo French horn playing this mournful minor third based melody. It's an ascending minor third. And then it sort of backs up and tries it again. One more time and it goes further up the scale. And then we get some blue notes, notes that are slightly off, not in the scale dissonant but in a piquant way the whole thing has the quality of the blues that someone sings about their lot in life and in fact i saw someone who did a study on bernstein's sketches for this score that are in the library of congress i think found a sheet where he had written down lyrics to that theme I don't think he ever had the intention to use these lyrics for anything other than self-inspiration, to understand what his theme felt like. Here's the lyrics. I've got two arms and a man's back and a hook and a glove, two fists and a mean aim and a woman I love. 
no more you don't need any more there's like four verses of that stuff oh my gosh (laughs) um (laughs) he wrote this stuff out i think just to orient himself to if it were a musical which is a world he was comfortable with if it were a musical this is an identity song this tune is like terry's tune he definitely meant it to represent terry's character the odd thing about that is that terry's character is in every scene of the movie he's in almost every shot of the movie and this tune is in the opening and then doesn't show up for 90 minutes and then it's at the end that's true but i think that gives it power it's not just Terry's tune. It's not a theme just to be played when the character's on the screen to remind you who it is. It's a theme not just of him, but it's a theme of his resolve and his evolution and maturity. And he holds it back for when he achieves a certain resolve and comes to the decision to do the right thing or to stand up for himself having done the right thing. When we hear it, I thought it was a very compelling payoff to play a theme at the beginning and then withhold it for 90 minutes and then bring it back, that takes, again, giant balls, you know? (laughs) Because it's like, Bernstein knew this theme is so musically charismatic that I can put it in a drawer for 90 minutes and when it comes back, the audience will know what I'm talking about. Yeah. That takes confidence that I'm not sure anyone else has. Another thing that takes confidence is what he does with the melody right after we hear it for the first time on the solo French horn. We hear it again now on winds, and it's in canon, which means that a different instrument is playing the same melody, the same set of notes and rhythms at a delayed start. So it's this iterative process where we hear the melody and then on top of itself again. You know, the notes don't always line up against each other constantly, but it flies because you're sort of hearing it linearly and the moment-by-moment vertical matchups of notes are less important than the horizontal progression of the melody. And it's an interesting technique because it reinforces the melody as a important unit. To me, that was like, first there's one man, and then there's an echo of that man, maybe other people. I don't know, maybe this is getting a little too deep into it, but it feels like it opens up the themes of the movie that have to do with the individual and the community. Sure. I think both of the things that we're saying are right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you're saying something in opposition to that. No, I'm just not using at all. Different words. So I was going to say, we talked about the main theme, or Terry's theme, which is the first thing we hear in the main title, and then it's followed by the, I think I've seen it referred to as the violence theme, those four notes. uh, Yeah, can I say something about naming themes, though, just generally? Like, is that Terry's theme? I don't know. It's the theme you hear at the beginning, and then it's the theme you hear at the end when he, like, embraces his noble role as an informant, and the nobility i think someone calls it the nobility theme okay there's any number of ways of describing what emotionally is going on there and i think that there's a risk in talking about movie scores generally of saying well this theme corresponds to a certain character a certain emotional state a certain principle because the viewer who's not doing a conscious analysis of the music is just kind of having experiences and not trying to name these things so you were just about to talk about the violence theme which 
Yeah, it's you just could name it any number of sure, things. Sure, I'm not I'm not married to any of these names. Uh, yeah, you could name them any number of things. It's just a shorthand for us to talk about them. All right, what were you going to say about the theme? Which one are you calling the violence theme? The timpani thing? The four notes that you referred to. See, I would think of that as like just the thematic material of this movie, the waterfront okay. theme. You can call that the waterfront theme, sure. But I wanted to ask, since Bernstein obviously had this sense of deriving other material from these atomic bits, mm -hmm. do you think that those four notes are lifted or derived from sort of the second half of the main title theme? There's slightly different intervals, but it's the same... Oh, that's a good point. It's the same contour. So I wonder if maybe he wrote that theme first and then picked the tail end of it to develop separately. They're not exactly the same notes, but uh, like I said, the same contour. Right. But, you know, the ways he uses those four notes are also often not exactly the That's same true. notes. Or he uses like inverted actually the same notes, but then surrounds them with not exactly the same notes. Like a thing that recurs twice is this sort of fight music. needlessly academic to talk about exactly which notes line up with those four notes. The important thing is just that the listener kind of feels a connection. Yeah. So I'll admit that I didn't feel a connection between the uh, main title theme, the Terry theme, and those four notes, even though you point out a completely likely, that sounds good to me, that it might have come from those notes. But I definitely do feel that a lot of material, that fight thing we just played and the thing from the church cue that we played earlier has uh, the trombones are playing related stuff underneath it. Bum, 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 bum. To me, all of that stuff felt of a piece. I'm in some kind of space that's musically all organically interconnected. You're definitely right. Those four notes are their own musical world. And he's built this universe of material that are very distinctly derived from those four notes. And when I noticed that they kind of lined up a little bit with these four notes at the second half of the main title theme, I went looking in it for if I could find the love theme sort of in there too, and no. Aha. And I think that is significant. He has this, as you say, a world of interrelated musical material. And then he also has, setting off to the side of the rest of this material, this love theme, which is just gorgeous i love yeah. this theme and it works on its own principles now we just need to listen to it straight through because it's such a good tune I think its introduction is another example of his spotting instincts being spot on, if you'll permit me. The scene where Eve Marie Saint and Marlon Brando are walking in the park, 
And it turns out that they knew each other when they were younger. And he asks her, do you remember me? And it's this lovely shot of just Eve Marie Saint alone. And she turns around. You don't, you don't remember me, do you? Remember you the first moment I saw you? Right a nose, huh? And the music sneaks well, in under that just at just mind. such a perfect moment and in a way that captures a little tilt of her head and just makes it so uh, romantic. First, it starts out with just winds playing the theme. And then there's another point of inflection in this scene, which is when the strings come in. How would you have done it? With a little more patience and kindness. That's what makes people mean and difficult. People don't care enough about them. Ah, uh, what are you kidding me? Come on, I better get you home. And it's, so many guys around here I felt such a nice heightening of the romantic emotion in the scene again. at that point. It, it again, it just clicked right into place so precisely with the action for me. Well. I am going to say that I think that Lenny got you under his spell as well he might because seriously this might be my favorite love theme in all moviedom but I don't know if it is the scene as conceived by anyone other than Lenny and I think that what it is doing is to be non-committal unusual in that what we're watching is a tough guy doesn't really know himself completely but he's a tough guy and he's kind of being drawn into this world of crime and very innocent Catholic school girl who hasn't really dealt with a lot of guys and her father has kept her away from the world of the docks and they're filmed in this realist way and they're doing this kind of acting which was essentially revolutionary on screen at the time. That scene that you're talking about is renowned as the glove scene where she drops a glove and then he plays with the glove and it's this detail work, uh, object-oriented work that hadn't really been seen in movies before. Yeah, it's a hallmark of method acting. That's right, which is where all these people came from, and Kazan came from there too, and they're all from the, the actor's studio. But anyway, the scene is being more realist and more uncertain about its romantic inclinations than most scenes in Hollywood movies had ever been, and this was in some ways kind of an independent movie. So how often do you get in here? been here since last Christmas. We were going to have a Thanksgiving party. That's nice. What do you do up there? Just, what, study? And Leonard Bernstein shows up and writes the most sweeping, stirring, romantic possible music, which plays not against the scene, but it draws out this subconscious layer. You know, it's like the two of them are face-to-face -face and having a kind of tentative, not even sure what their own agendas are, a conversation that has no overt romantic content. The scene isn't building to them, realizing they love each other. It just builds up to Brando saying, like, eh, maybe I'll see you later. I don't know. And Leonard Bernstein feels that he is going to sing the song of the hearts of these two people, which is not on the screen. And several scenes are going to pass before they're still not close together. And he goes even further with the next scene, which, which well, we should right. talk about. So, but you, you use the word sweeping, uh, well, and I me. disagree. I don't think he sweeps well, with it yet. I, I think the introduction of it 
is nice and soft and tentative. Uh, like, I don't think it gets to sweeping in this cue. It definitely gets to sweeping in the next love scene. Before we move on to that one, what I'm referring to is the moment at the end of the tune I really don't. There's a change there. There's a significant change. You know, as someone who's listened to the suite many times and can hum this theme and knows what's coming, I thought, oh, that's that moment of, you know, I get the shivers kind of when I hear that. And it doesn't correspond to what's going on in the scene. It is just a musical sweep. That's what I mean by sweep, is that he's being drawn through some kind of emotional flow that isn't what is flowing between the two characters. It's the deep, deep subterranean layer of what's going on between the, the characters. Come on, I better get you home. There's too many guys around here with only one thing in their mind. Am I going to see you again? What for? I don't know. I really don't If you had seen this scene with just the dialogue, with the Eva Marie St. Marlon Brando performances, he says, uh, you think I'm going to see you again? She's like, I don't know why. And he's like, eh, I don't know. Do you think you would have seen that and thought, since this scene is about people opening up to each other, I should get ahead of them and play what love sounds like? I was moved by it watching it. I felt that it gave a romantic overtone, yeah, that is sort of not quite in the realistic performances that they're giving. Yeah, I guess I was aware that he was like, now here is the love theme. Beyond that, that he was saying, now here is the love. In a real sense to me, it felt like it was running ahead of what was on screen. And it was doing so, so forcefully that I couldn't think of that as a mistake. It was a definite dramatic choice, but it was a surprising dramatic Well, I guess it's similar to, to him running ahead of the on-screen action at the top of the picture. He telegraphs that the dude's going to get pushed off a roof before we even know what we're looking at. And if he's telegraphing the love here, I didn't mind it. I'm not saying that I minded it. I'm just noting that it's a different attitude toward dramaturgy than what I think Kazan had in mind. Well, I, he what certainly, I think the rest you're, of the movie is. you're right. He definitely felt compelled to treat it with, and I think it's appropriate to call it an operatic intensity. Maybe I was under his spell. Maybe you're right. It was such a, a spellbinding theme that it convinced me of its appropriateness. I'm not asking you to fess up to having fallen for something. I mean, it's a choice. No, I fell for it hard. You know, it's, it's just a funny thing to combine with the actor's studio style, with the method. Here they are focusing on the glove, and the composer is saying, the glove's not important. In fact, even what they're saying to each other isn't important. What's important is, like, love. And I mean, it's a very compelling case, but there's a tension there for me in what the intention is. And I think that tension makes this movie greater than the sum of its parts, but that's the do not try this at home aspect of it. Right. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. I do agree that he is going through the playbook of love must be acknowledged and articulated in an operatic fashion. And I think he did it sensitively in this scene. And I think he did it insensitively in the next scene which is a, a track on the soundtrack called Pigeons and Beer. They go up to uh, the rooftop. Terry likes to raise pigeons. He has a pigeon coop. He's talking to Eva Marie Saint about his pigeons and asks her out to have a beer with him. 
That's why this Q has that title. That's exactly why it has that title. It's pretty much the only reasons why it has that title. So you want to read what Lenny says? Yeah, sure. So he says, sometimes the music which had been planned as a composition with a beginning, middle, and end would be silent seven bars before the end. This is, of course, frustrating and maddening for the composer. But even more frustrating and maddening things may happen. For example, there is, in On the Waterfront, a tender, hesitant love scene on the roof between the inarticulate hero and the inhibited heroine, surrounded by cooing pigeons. It was deliberately underwritten, and there are long, Kazan-like pauses between the lines. An ideal spot, it would seem, for the composer to take over. Okay, can we interrupt here and say, Lenny has the concept that there's such a thing as the composer taking over. Right. And that that is something he was watching this movie for. (laughs) When do I get to take over? (laughs) You just feel that throughout the movie. And I love it when music runs the show, but... You know, it's like someone with a huge, huge present walks presence walks into your party and is like, here I am. Listen to me. I love and it when like, someone well, with a huge present walks into my party. It's both good. <laughs> you're like, well, he, he is pretty charismatic, so I'll listen to him. But that kind of took me by surprise. I feel like that's who Lenny is in this movie. So this was the scene that stuck out to me where his egotistical, perhaps, instincts to take over and I'm running the show here where it missed. This was the miss for me. I was most aware of the incongruity of it against the picture here. And yeah, I wrote that this scene is like a behind the scenes creative fight happening right before your eyes. Yeah, it is. And here, so let me continue with the quote to articulate that behind the scenes fight. Uh, an ideal spot it would seem for the composer to take over, Lenny writes. I suggested that here I should write love music that was shy at first and then with growing Tristanish intensities, referring to the Wagner opera Tristan und Isolde, come to a great climax which swamps the scene and screen, even drowning out the last prosaic bits of dialogue, which went something like this. Have a beer with me? Very long pause. Uh-huh. The music here was to do the real storytelling, and Kazan and company agreed enthusiastically, deciding to do it this way before even one note was written. So it was written, so orchestrated, so recorded. Okay, but wait, let's... So it shall be done. So let's... He doesn't say so it shall be done. That's John. Let's go Let's insert here. This is the key justification for the rest of the complaint he's about to do. Kazan and company agreed enthusiastically. Yeah. But... Can you imagine what I imagine, which is Lenny calling from his studio saying, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write huge, huge uh, love music at this point. I'm going to write, it's going to be like Tristan. And Kazan saying, well, you're Leonard Bernstein. That uh, sounds good to me. And then they show up in the dubbing room and they're like, well, I don't know about this. And Lenny's like, well, you agreed enthusiastically. So so here's Kazan's quote from that interview. That seems to respond to that. He says, there's a very great danger with music, which is that you beg for sympathy with it. And also it gets predictable. Here's the love scene music. Lenny is, is obviously saying, here's the love scene music very loudly here. Do you like beer? I don't know. I bet you never had a glass of beer. You ever have a glass of beer? No. Want to have one with me? In a saloon? Oh, yeah. I mean, I know nice little stuff down here that got a special entrance for ladies, all like that. Come on, come on, come on, mate. Come on. 
the degree to which what Lenny does in this scene is beyond the pale. <laughs> I can't imagine Kazan even imagining that that's what he meant. Right. And then when he showed up and said, no, I thought I would stand in front of your movie and wave my arms. <laughs> and then Kazan would say, oh, well, um, you can wave one arm. And then they have a fight about that. <laughs> that's what I imagine. Yeah. And, you know, Leonard Bernstein's ego was notoriously enormous. Yeah. Which I don't begrudge him. I love his music. Did I mention that earlier? I love <laughs> Leonard Bernstein's music. And I love this music, which is sort of the centerpiece of the suite. But what do you think, John? What do you think Bernstein thought the effect would be? I think he thought that the audience would go along with him on a Tristanish ride, that they would understand that they were watching something be elevated into operatic realms. And this was a universal declaration of love uh, above all that would be a, you know, a, a glory to see and to hear. And yeah, I think in this scene, it amounts to him standing in front of the screen, waving his arms. You know, the move he's playing here is actually odder than that because... He says, you want to have a drink with me? Okay. And then it cuts to them in the bar, in the saloon scene. And the cut is a anticline. You know, it's like you don't get the resolution at the end of the theme. Builds and builds and builds. And then we're listening to barroom piano played by Lenny himself. Hey, uh, Mac. Yeah. Uh, two Glockenheimers and two for chases. Yeah. Did you fight last night? No. Kid named Riley, both hands. Yeah, but it's, if you listen to the notes, it does continue, like, it's a resolution to where the love theme had gotten up to. The piano just sort of instantly transmogrifies into this barroom jazz piano. It was obviously intentional. Oh, of course it was intentional. It was more than intentional. I'm saying that the build, he had in mind this kind of snapback to the prosaic effect. Uh -huh. And I wonder what the dramatic function of that is supposed to be at this juncture in the movie. I wonder if it's partially that he wants to be a little cute. There's definite evidence of him being a little cute in that there is source music playing, presumably like on the jukebox that is like a popularized jazz standard treatment of the love Come theme. On, we'll get out through here. What's the matter with you? No. And Eva Marie Saint even huh? says out loud, that's a pretty tune. Come on. That's a pretty tune. And then they dance to it. Yeah, I think he was having a bit of fun in putting that in there. And then there's, after that, there's a jazz treatment of the four-note waterfront theme. I wouldn't do that. I'll see the little lady home. So just tell them I'll come over there when I'm ready. Hey, hello! Hello, wait up! Who was that? I don't know. And then in the scene right after that... Marlon Brando's walking down the street at night and he whistles that tune that he was presumably just hearing in the bar. I wasn't sure what to make of that. It was this kind of bizarre uh, cross-pollination of score and source. Again, maybe my tone in this episode is unclear. I think this is all like hugely stimulating, even when I think that there's a kind of mismatch. I enjoy it as a viewer. And I thought that that anticlimax effect of, you know... 
back. I think that he just felt like there's this drama implicit in being brought back to the world from the operatic space. And so he just threw that in there, even though it's not really where the screenplay has it happen. Actually, he pulls the same move at the end of that scene. They have what is, in some ways, their most genuinely sensitive interaction in this barroom scene. This is where emotion starts to come into it. She puts her hand on his face and he feels stirred inside. And there is very delicate music under this where Bernstein seems to recognize that this dialogue matters. And then he pulls the same move. She leaves the room and suddenly there's a slap in the face. She goes into a, a raucous wedding outside and we suddenly hear this raucous wedding music. The way that he scores this scene is relatively sensitive. Uh, especially compared to the Tristanish uh, one on the roof that we just heard. And I remember thinking, yeah, this is more like it. This is paying attention to the tone of what's happening on screen. And I, f- I felt like this was sensitive. And then also the, the scene where they first kiss, where she comes and sees him on the roof at night. And again, that was a calm, understated version of the theme that was much more effective. To me, that cue, which is very simple in a lot of ways, is one of the most effective in the movie. That, to me, is one of the places where Bernstein's dramatic choices felt like they were enhancing Kazan's implicit dramatic choices, specifically in that at the end of this cue, with the very delicate presentation of the love theme. So... The mob has killed another would-be informer that day, and this one really got to Terry. His heart is starting to turn to realize that the surrogate father, Lee J. Cobb, the terrible mob boss, maybe isn't such a great guy, and maybe the good-heartedness of even Saint is the way he's going to turn. And he's lying on the roof, distraught, and his feelings are swirling around, you can sort of sense. And then they kiss, and it's like this kiss is the turning point for him. Bernstein scores it with this surprise chord with the harp that comes Yeah, the surprise chord on the kiss. To me, that was one of these moments where there was a sense of true synchrony between Mm -hmm. the director's conception of what the story was doing and Bernstein's. And it's a goosebumpy kind of thing. Like something musical has really landed right at the center of what's on screen. I thought that was a really beautiful moment in the whole score. You know, I think another sign of Bernstein being truly capable of inspired movie scoring according to the laws of movie scoring, not in an eccentric or egocentric way, but as a true movie composer, is very apparent in the most famous scene, the cab scene, where Brando gets to say, I could have been a contender, I could have been someone instead of a bum. bum, which is what I am. That's pretty good, John. Hey, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I think we were talking on Golden Pond about how hey, you know, maybe the reason this is one of the all-time quotes has to do with this music that is enhancing it, making it sound special. I absolutely think that's the case here. Sure. Bernstein lays this stuff in. He doesn't even use it in the suite. It's like its effect is too linked to being supportive. He has this dirge-like music. Yeah, it's elegiac. 
as you mentioned earlier, it's derived out of that four-note theme, but here is an example of him, you know, taking it and running in a different direction with it. He sequentializes it. He repeats the motif again and again, but moving... definitely a part where you hear the four note motif and the second phrase of the theme but the first phrase kind of relates to the motif in that you know da 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 the first two notes are the first two notes of that four note theme and then the overall highest note and lowest note are the second two notes or something like that it just feels like an organic offshoot of that theme in the in a subconscious way i mm-hmm. i'm sure i could write a paper and say well this note derives from this note but that it's really beside the point i'm sure many people have i'm sure people have it, it gets done all the time you can't stop them <laughs> but um maybe this podcast will finally put a stop to we'll it finally put an end to that practice <laughs> there been another billy Khan. That skunk we got you for the manager. He brought you along too fast. It wasn't him, Charlie. It was you. Remember that night in the garden you came down my dressing room and said, Kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. This is just, to me, like the height of dialogue scoring because if you ask people in the contender scene, what is the music doing? They'd be like, I don't know, is there music? I I don't even know. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short end money. I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. It's this moment here where it rises and opens and it expands and you get this kind of chest expanding sensation of this suppressed emotion rising to the surface between these two brothers. Okay. Okay. The depth of emotion that it is tapping into is just beyond the particular dialogue going on, and it makes the dialogue feel like it's infused with that depth. And I think that's why this scene stands out to people as one of the all-time scenes. And it really, I mean, it's it's just a terrific scene, and I hadn't seen it since I was 13 in context. It's the payoff of all of this sort of unspoken stuff. Bernstein just does exactly, exactly what he should do there. Yeah, it's just terrific, and... uh, So Charlie relents and he lets Brando out of the cab and the cab driver, we now see a shot of him, you know, obviously another mob guy and the music kicks into gear with this same figure that we had heard during the riot in the church. This is telling you the wheels are turning. He's in trouble. And this is playing as Brando is going up to Emily Saint's apartment knocking on her door and trying to talk to her. But meanwhile, Lenny is scoring the mob. Lenny is scoring what's not on the scene. It makes it this presence. It's this very visceral sense of they're coming to get you, even though we don't see them. And this builds to a crescendo that stops very abruptly when he sort of uh, forces his way into a kiss. 
with Eve Marie Saint. It stops dead on this kiss, and then she reciprocates the kiss. At first, I was a little jarred by this sudden stop, but the meaning that I got out of it was that all this bad stuff coming, swirling uncertainties of this world that he's in, at the instant that he kisses her, it falls away and he's left with his own reality and with his own genuine love. This is, in a way, the proof that Lenny is not just running wild in love with his own music. Because if he had been, he would have scored that kiss. He would yeah. have played some damn love music. Right, but it's in silence. To stand back further, the movie kind of shows Terry torn between these sort of two families. One within his relationship with her and one with the threatening father figure of Lee J. Cobb. And the father figure uses force and, and fear to get his way. And she has this loving attitude and the music to me the love theme didn't correspond just to the relationship between these two characters but to a, the worldview in which love is important not to get too high about it but first time we see lee j cobb really storming around his office and, and threatening people he's just being a rough gangster this scene is not scored he doesn't get any music all right payday and then at the end of that scene, it cuts Johnny. to the rooftop. We see the pigeons for the first time. And there's this very gentle, evocative kind of the cooing of the pigeons in musical form comes in. And it's like the music is saying, there's this world of how things work for these gangsters. And then there's another world of gentleness and the emotions that coexists here and there's this tension in the movie between the two and so that's a moment where the harsh world doesn't get music and the gentle world then gets the music and the moment we're talking about at the end the harsh world is this music and then there's a break and he re-enters the the world of love as the answer to things rather than fear and both of those cuts are very effective because mm -hmm. going from music to no music or from no music to music, you feel like you're crossing over some divide. And the whole movie is about Terry trying to navigate this divide. Which way is he going to go? Is he going to inform on these people or is he going to stay D&D, &D, deaf and dumb, like they keep yeah, saying? Yeah, they, they play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons in this movie. Totally. The Demogorgon is a big part of the movie. So now that we've talked about the love theme, let's go back to that moment when we hear the Terry theme again for the first time basically in 90 minutes because what it does is shows up and then immediately uh even marie saint's character says are you going to go down there and try and be a hero you don't need to do that and her love theme is in this counterpoint dialogue kind of like what you were talking about at the beginning like the two themes are just played against each other coexisting in the space she's pleading with him he's saying but i have to do this and and that's what we hear in the music and 
it really does come off. I think it's rare that the audience really understands specific motives and themes well enough to pull this kind of thing, but Bernstein's are so strong that at the end of this movie, I think he has earned the ability to do that. The two different themes are, you said it's sort of in a dialogue with each other, where we hear a bit of one and then a bit of the next one, going back and forth. Skip ahead to the very end of the movie, Mm -hmm. the last thing that we hear. So now we're at the end of the movie, and Brando has gotten into a fight with Lee J. Cobb, which he was winning until Lee J. Cobb had uh, like five of his mob goons come in and unfairly pummel Brando into the ground. And he is bloodied and can barely open his eyes. And it is somehow established that if he is able to make this walk across the pier to the foreman to accept the work that is to be assigned, then all of the other dock workers will be in solidarity with him. And the mob boss's reign of terror over the union is broken because everybody else has come to Terry's side. Conveniently. Yes. Okay, so then Terry is staggering across the pier, woozy and punch drunk, and you know we see shots from his point of view that are blurring up and shaking. He can barely keep his eyes open. He can barely walk straight, but you know with this grim determination on his face, this great shot of his face just filling the screen, and then the faces of the dock workers behind him, you know, in solidarity, and we're hearing this enormously triumphant statement of this theme of nobility and uh, resolve. It starts with this weak, drunken sound on the vibraphone, and Uh the orchestration builds and builds as the heroism of the scene becomes apparent. It's a truly magical marriage of music and picture that is transcendent above either art on its own. And it really creates this this new thing, this new combination between what you're looking at and what you're hearing that is itself memorable as an association. combination of the things together being greater than the sum of the parts. And that is absolutely what is happening here, and it is, it works so well, and is so just great, you know? This is a real great thing we're listening to. Now, are you familiar with Billy the Kid by Aaron Copeland? Sure, a bit. Did you notice that this sounds like that? It sounds kind of like it. Uh, Which is fine. I have no problem with that. And uh, Bernstein was a friend of Copeland's and sort of acknowledged his debt to him all the time and just more generally i have no problem with movie music sounding like other music or any music sounding like other music well what do you think about the score to la confidential by jerry goldsmith that has a theme that kind of sounds like this theme 
as well it might. Yeah, well, I love that score too. Anyway, I was going to say, though, that whereas in the previous example where Terry and Eva Marie Saint are having this dialogue and their respective themes are having a dialogue, now at the very end of the movie, as he's reaching the foreman and completing his walk of triumph, now those two themes are layered on top of each other. Now there's a high trumpet playing the love theme on top of the meat of the orchestra playing Terry's theme. And if you tried to justify that, if you tried to say, well, it's her love that allowed him to do that, or she's looking on proudly as he does it, those sound kind of like a stretch or weak or something compared to the immense impact of just the musical effect itself, which is part of why I'm wary of naming themes and what they do. Whatever words you want to put to it, that theme that corresponded to the tender emotions and the theme that corresponded to the noble emotions are here synced. Sure. And it doesn't matter which characters got you there. That's what emotionally has finally happened for us at the end of the movie. Sure. Of course, they represent different ideas and, you know, different ways of looking at things over the course of the movie. So I like that way of putting it, the theme of tender emotions and the theme of noble emotions. Yes, they both arrive here at the end and they are both triumphant. And it is, uh, it's stunning. They're triumphant, but there's also this element of toughness still built into it. I mean, listen to these final chords. Oh, I like those final chords a lot. There's a dissonance to them, but it's kind of a... It's a stable dissonance, is how I feel about it. And I kind of think of it like, like a shimmer, a shimmer of dissonance. Yeah, well, it doesn't make you doubt that this is the resolution. It's completely unambiguously the end, right. the resolution, the final chord, and yet it has um, strain still in it. These are dock workers. It's not like their lives are all easy now, but they're triumphantly hard. Yeah. Speaking of things being unambiguously at the end, let's uh, put a bow on this. Andy, how do you think that this score compares to the three previous scores that we've talked about, which again are How the West Was Won, On Golden Pond, and The Mission? So if you'll remember my personal ranking, I have maintained that order. I thought that is the correct order for those three. So my personal list continues to look like the AFI list because I believe this is at a higher level than any of those three. Uh, Honestly, I'm not sure there's going to be music in this series that standing on its own I like more than this this really is my cup of tea and then in the movie even without this score this is already a movie with a bunch of different elements it's like a social realist movie with a kind of a romantic ultimate outcome with the love story in it that is an integral part of what happens to the character and a gangster movie and if it were any one of those things it wouldn't be nearly as fascinating and engaging and beloved a movie and i think that the music is a crucial part of making this seem like a a stimulating and important and uh, unforgettable movie because it it's both heightened and prosaic at the same time in the same space in ways that 
it's up to you to figure out how to feel both at once. And that's a, that's a very rich offering for the audience. And again, like I said at the beginning, don't try this at home. Usually, yeah. if you don't do what the director is doing, <laughs> you're going to make a mess. And Leonard Bernstein was too good to ever just make a mess. What we have here is like a rich stew, and that to me is great. So yeah, it's definitely the top of the list so far. Yeah, it's at the top of my list as well. I like that uh, rich stew uh, thought about it. And uh, yeah, I think you already articulated very nicely why this is great. I think it's not only great music, it is a great score because it is telling the story of the movie and giving the audience things to understand about what is happening in the movie in a very thoughtful and very powerful way. And it has what I want. It has this transcendent combination of music and image. John, inquiring listeners want to know, you were a little ambiguous in your first personal ranking when you ranked Golden Pond <laughs> and uh, How the West Was Won yeah, Against Each Other. You said there were two ways you could do That's it. That's right. But <laughs> you, you need to commit, sir. What does your list look like at this point? Okay, I will put on Golden Pond above How the West Was Won. And you put the mission below both of them, I put as the I mission below both of them, and, uh, and now I put On the Waterfront on top. Half of our movies now also begin the titles with the word on, so probably half of the remaining ones will as well. And half of them feature Carl Malden, and half of them feature Henry Fonda. That's right. Henry Fonda was in How the West Was Won. Are there any other connections thus far? Uh, probably. Probably so. Check IMDb for further information. <laughs> uh, maybe also check IMDb to uh, acquaint yourself with the movie we will be talking about next time, which is Ben-Hur, the 1959 Swords and Sandal biblical epic with the score by Mikla Shroja. So I guess that's all for this time. Then. How will we do a sign-off? What kind of sign-off shall we have on this show? We should have one. We should have a formula sign-off if we have a formula intro. Uh, until next time, keep your score settled. Vetoed. <laughs> I, I kind of liked it last time when you said, that score has been settled. That's exactly because I don't believe in that. Look, maybe we can make it a running gag that I don't like this title. I'll just mention that on every show, then we'll be great. Listen, how many times do I have to tell you, come up with a better title? I'm not crazy about it. That's according to the rule where you're only allowed to dislike something if you have a better thing. But I cannot live up to that standard. <laughs> I just dislike. Listeners, what should we call our show? Settling the score is pretty good, right? It's good enough. I agree that it is good enough. That doesn't mean I like it. Okay, let's say something and it'll be the end. <laughs> Thanks for sticking with us, listeners. Oh, you don't exist yet, but you will soon. No, they do. They definitely exist. Oh, right, because this is um, Because available. of time. You're not thinking four-dimensionally, Andy. <laughs> you're right, you're right. <laughs> okay, future listeners <laughs> for whom this is the present, uh, welcome... <laughs> Welcome to the end. <laughs> <laughs>